0: Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you surely love me more than these? He, yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs." Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you surely love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that, that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time um, he said, um, Simon said, do you truly love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and where, and where you wanted. But when you are, are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would go, glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter then saw that the disciple whom Jesus left was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to be you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me.
1: Amen. Thank you. <laughs> you can be seated. Um, before we jump in our word, let's pause for a moment in prayer because. It is God who gives the light of knowledge of him to us, not my words. And so we go to him to ask him to reveal himself to us. So Father, as I, as I hear these words uh, read over us, I hear you asking me over and over again, do you love me? Chris, do you love me? My love drifts from you to the world constantly and yet you ask me over again, do you love me? Give us eyes to see that Our love for you first begins with your love for us. Give us faith to believe that you are more worthy of our love and affection than anything in this world can offer us. And Spirit, would you, for those who come into the room feeling like Peter at this fire, feeling guilt and shame, would you meet them? Would you comfort them? Some of us have been hiding shame for years and years thinking no one knows it and we need to have the the confidence to know that the Lord of the universe knows everything. You know when our spirit is willing and yet our flesh is weak. We love you because you loved us first. Would you help us be a church family here where we can confess sin and be restored? Give us courage to follow you. Thank you for your word. Amen. All right, so we're now in our second week of this final chapter of John, chapter uh, 21. We're overlapping a little bit with last Sunday's text where we see Peter, uh, Simon Peter being asked by Jesus over and over again, Simon, do you love me? As we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. What would you do if you did something you said you would never do? Think about that for a moment. What would you do if you did something You had said you would never do. Maybe you have. Maybe the question is, what have you done that you said you would never do? I don't mean examples like my own where I, I said I'll never go to Arkansas State because I'm an Arkansas Razorback through and through. Woo pig. I mean something that causes a little bit more guilt and shame when you followed through with it. Maybe you said, I'll never yell at my kid because my old man yelled all the time. But then that toddler just would not stop crying, would not pick up their toys, threw their food in the floor in the restaurant. Maybe you said, I'll never use drugs or I'll never use them again because I saw how it destroyed my family. But in a moment of loneliness and despair, you gave it a shot. Maybe you said, I'll never be unfaithful to my wife because I saw the pain it caused my mom. I can almost guarantee that you have said, I'll never go back to that old sin because Jesus died for me. Maybe even saying that on Easter. And then by the time the next Sunday rolled around, you found yourself there again. What would you do if you did something you had said you would never do? Because That's all of us, right? There's no use in pretending like we're all in the same boat there. So this morning we're looking in on this very intimate conversation that Jesus has with Peter just days after flat out denying he even knew him. My hope is that this morning that you will believe, like Peter, that you're invited to follow Jesus because he's not done with you yet. He's not done with you. Throughout this text, we're going to be seeing how following the risen Jesus affects how we view our past. It affects how we view our present, and it affects how we view our future. Now, Peter, he's, uh, he's the main subject of our text here, and he's had quite a week, a rough week, to be frank. The night that uh, Jesus' final meal with his disciples, they walk in, they're having their feet washed by Jesus, and he comes to Simon Peter, and Peter's like, no, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? No, you don't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, no, let me, let me do what I want to do. And Simon's like, okay, fine. If you're going to wash my feet, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, no, dude, just let me do what I was going to do, okay? Let me wash your feet. And then they go to the meal, and and Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And he's talking about Judas. And Simon says, even if everyone falls away, I never will, Lord. Thinking uh, Jesus is going to be like, see, there's my boy. He's got my back. He's never going to betray me. But no, Jesus turns to him and says, Simon, before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. And Peter, he doubles down. He says, no, even if I must die for you, I will. And later that night, Jesus is praying in the garden. He's in distress. and am sure that's visible to be seen by his friends. And he asks three of his closest disciples to come with him, to pray with him, to watch over while he prays. And they can't stay awake. Peter falls asleep on him. And then he, thinking maybe to prove his dedication, to Jesus, probably in a lot, a lot of fear and disorientation, the crowds come to arrest Jesus and, and Peter's going to be macho man. He pulls out his sword and he slices off the ear of a, temple, of a, a servant of the temple. Probably thinking Jesus will approve of this, right? <laughs> and Jesus does the exact opposite and, and heals the man's ear. And then he denied knowing Jesus. Not once, not twice, But three times. And in in Matthew's gospel, it says that in his third denial, he, he was so adamant, so strong, he began to call curses down upon himself, saying, I don't know who that man is. I swear by my life, I've never seen him. He didn't chant with the crowds, crucify him, crucify him, likely. But his denial of Jesus has a similar weight to it. That was his friend. And then his friend dies. The man he he had confessed he thought would be the Messiah was now dead. And there's got to be still some confusion because they know about this empty tomb. They've seen an empty tomb, but they don't know what to do with that. And so he goes back to his old life again. He goes fishing, and he's truly a terrible fisherman. Peter not only kept um, kept quiet while Jesus was being brought before the courts, he outright denied knowing his friend. Peter failed him. Who would want that man? Who would want to remain friends with him? Who would have anything to do with this man? A couple years ago, I was on a, a church staff in Kansas City, and we had a, church, a staff fun day. We went to play pickleball at this pickleball restaurant. It's amazing food and pickleball. I know it's an old man sport, but like, when you get 30-year-olds out there playing, we do way more than we should. And I paired up with my friend, Randy, Randy and I were really good together. We beat everyone left and right. It was a lot of fun. And there was one other pairing, um, two people who shall remain nameless, that they also were beating people left and right. So we're at the end of the Staff fun Day. We face off against each other for the first time, and everyone's watching. You got like 40 or 50 people watching us play pickleball, and it's a battle back and forth. But they actually end up victorious, and me and Randy lose. Uh, Randy and I are close friends and it's fun. But the other guy, another guy on the other team, he and I were pretty close friends. And just to have some fun, I text him. He and I were clearly the most athletic on the teams. Uh, and I just text him. I said, Man, if you and I were together, nobody could beat us. Nobody in the world could beat us, right? As a joke, he screenshot my text to him and sent it to all of our staff to playfully shame me for betraying my teammate Randy. We all laughed. But I actually had some genuine shame and like trauma about texting now. Like I'm afraid to like joke with someone via text. Because what if you screenshot it and send it to all the people? Like I felt betrayed by my friend. Like I felt hurt. Like I actually still don't text him the same way I used to anymore. So we're quick to write people off. You're done with me. You did it again? You said you never would. I'm done with you. You're back with her? Man, you repulsed me. We might not actually say it, but we think it. The question I would be tempted to ask if if Simon Peter's in front of me and you betrayed me is like, what are you doing here? What do you have to say for yourself? Jesus subtly brought up this failure as he asked him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, you've been bold to proclaim how committed you are, how strong you are, Do you love what I can do for you or what you think I came to do for Israel or do you love me? See, Jesus was not done with Peter yet. I don't think it's a coincidence that he recreated many of their memories together in this one scene. So he finds them again at the Sea of Galilee, the the first place where he found them and said, follow me. He finds them being terrible fishermen and he multiplies the fish for them earlier in John chapter 21. He sits down and he breaks bread with them, just like in his final meal with them. And he's got a charcoal fire in front of him, just like Peter had in front of him when he denied knowing Jesus. In order to bring healing to Peter, Jesus walked through his guilt and shame with him. We want to hide it. We want to put it in the closet, sweep it under the rug, whatever phrase you want to say. We have this part of us that we want to hide. We don't want to acknowledge. But Jesus is not afraid of your past. We try to hide what Jesus wants to heal. And this isn't the first time that he's done this either. You remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. He walks up to her and he sees her and he knows her and he kind of walks through her guilt and shame with her. As he says, you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. And I don't know if he actually did this, but I can believe it the way that the show The Chosen talks to it. He knows every one of the men's names and how she feels about them. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus does not turn a blind eye to our sin. He can open the closet. He can lift up the rug. He knows where our shame is. But he isn't going to rub your nose in it either. He's not afraid of your past. He's not avoiding eye contact with you while he's sitting around the fire with the good boys. (laughs) Me, Okay, I'll say it again. (laughs) He's not... (laughs) 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 Uh, For those watching online, somebody's phone, Siri said they didn't catch that. So I'll say it again. (laughs) He isn't (laughs) avoiding... He's not avoiding contact with you, eye contact with you, while talking to everyone else. This is going to get funny again, because my next point. Uh, Jesus is more like a loving parent who has a baby with a poopy diaper. So there we go again. The baby can't change their own mess. Even if it wanted to, a baby can't change their own diaper. And while sometimes we joke about diapers being the worst of all time, right? a loving parent can look that baby in the eyes as they're changing a bag of human fecal matter and with a pure conscience, look at that baby and sing, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. The mess that that baby has made does not change the love that a parent has for their baby. Like, Do you think about God looking at you that way? As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed your sinfulness. As far as the east is from the west, I'll remove a poopy diaper out of my house, but my baby I will cherish Forever. Peter has made some mistakes, but he is not a mistake. I think we need to hear that too. You've made mistakes, but you are not a mistake. Peter let his friend down in some truly terrible ways. He said, I'll never leave you. I don't know that man. I'll die for you. I swear on my life, I've never seen him. Unlike us, Jesus wasn't done with Peter yet. But before he could grow from this, he had to face his past again. So one commentator says this. He says, Gospel surgery is free, but not always easy. Grace produces redemptive pain, not punitive pain. But pain is still painful. It would have been easier on Peter had Jesus asked him, Do you promise not to fail me again? But Jesus knew better than to ask that question, because of course Peter would fail again we know that he would stumble badly as it related to the Gentile Christians and Paul had to rebuke him later. By asking Simon Peter three times, do you love me? Jesus is helping Peter relive his past. And in preparation for this text, I actually noticed that not only did he actively outright deny Jesus and sin that way, like, he also very passively just fell asleep on his friend and failed him in that way. Jared told me this way uh, this week the two things that lead to unfaithfulness are crisis and boredom. Have you found yourself in a crisis and in fear turned your back on Jesus? He asks, Do you love me? Have you fallen asleep on Jesus, focused on your own comfort and pleasure and control? He asks, Do you love me? You see, this this isn't just recorded in the Bible so we know history, so we know how Jesus interacts with Peter. It's not just a history lesson. This is a question for you and me. Do you love me? It's not, can you impress me? Not, what can can I do for you? Do you love what I can do for you? It's, do you love me? One of my favorite worship songs is called, uh, What Have We Done? And it makes me Pretty sad every time I sing it because it takes us uh, from looking not just at what Peter and Judas did, but it asks us, or it, it states that we did the same. It says, Judas sold you for 30. I'd have done it for less. Peter denied you three times. I have denied you more. And it continues. It says, oh my God, what have we done? We have destroyed your son. Peter might be asking himself in the midst of this conversation with Jesus, Why me? Why is Jesus bringing up my junk? I mean, we all walked away, right? We all hid. We all failed him. Why me? Why is he talking to me? Which transitions into, why me? Why does he still want me? Why does he still love me? Why is he still pursuing me? Why me? You may want to run from it or hide it or pretend it doesn't exist, but we all have past shame that Jesus wants to restore And to say that you don't is to say to deny everything that Jesus came for. We can have a tendency to compare uh, one another's sin with our own. We can see how someone else is more remorseful than our sin than maybe we are, or how nonchalant others are about their sin than we are. But Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Are you a member of all? And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. We all have brokenness in our past and in our present that needs to be redeemed. And that's that's what he's doing with Simon Peter and his past failure, but in the midst of restoration, as we move from his past to his present, notice that Peter's being restored, but he is not fully transformed yet. Even in Jesus' question of, Do you love me? It starts off with do you love me more than these? Commentators tell us that there, there are three different ways that that sentence really could be finished. Do you love me more than these fish that are before us? Like, do you love me more than your calling? Do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than these people? Like, do you love me more than these relationships that you have? Or do you love me more than these people do? A comparison, a competition. And if it is the last, it connects really well with the end of our passage where Peter looks over his shoulder He looks at the other disciple and says, what about him? Peter's been restored, but he's not fully transformed. He's still comparing himself to his peers. Just like the night when Jesus predicted that someone would betray him, Peter said, even if all these other jalopies leave you, I never will. I'm better than all of them. I'm more committed. I'm stronger. Earlier this week, Jared and I were walking down Pruitt Street and as we're walking, somebody in one of the shops says hi to him, yells at him, and and as friendly as Jared always is, he's saying hi, looking in the window. And I, I turn around and I look to see what he's doing. And I walk straight into a mailbox. Oh, it hurt so bad. Looking away from where you're going to your friends and peers, it'll get you hurt. That's all I have to say. <laughs> uh, here at the end of his restoration, really still in the middle of his restoration, Peter's already taken his eyes off Jesus and comparing himself to others. I think he's annoyed by John because he sees in John so much of himself. One disciple raced Peter to the empty tomb, John. One disciple apparently didn't stay hidden during the crucifixion and sat with Mary, the mother of Jesus, John. One disciple is called the the one who Jesus loves, John. Comparison, competition. This this has been Peter's Achilles heel throughout Jesus' ministry. He confesses his love for Christ, and the, like you and me, he's still a flawed man. His spirit is willing to die for Christ. But his flesh is susceptible to self-preservation, to pleasing man, to finding his righteousness and being the best. He was concerned about others, or what, being better than others, but what others thought about him. In the quote earlier, we saw that it would be easier on Peter in the moment To just let him promise that he'll never fail Jesus again. But that promise would be impossible to fulfill. And we see later that Peter was the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So at this point, Christianity is just a Jewish religion, basically. All the Christians essentially are Jews. And Peter is given this vision by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which is the non-Jews. So he gives this vision to go to a very specific person, a Roman military leader, and the the Spirit of God shows up and people are saved, and it's amazing, right? This same man who's the first one to take the gospel to the Gentiles later in his life discriminates against Gentiles, won't eat with them because he's afraid of what the Jewish leaders, the Jewish Christians, would think about him. He had to be confronted uh, by Paul who... Uh, called him out, and Peter apparently repented. That's all of us. How many of us walked into this room afraid of what others think about us, comparing ourselves to others? Maybe you felt discouraged as you came in because you compared yourself to someone else in the room. Maybe you felt some sinful pride as you compared yourself to someone else when you walked in the room. Maybe you walked in and felt resentment from God Because you look and you see in someone else something you wish you had. Whether it be money or a spouse or children or confidence, opportunity, talent. Especially in suffering, we we may be guilty of looking around and saying, what about them? Why am I suffering so much and yet they look like they have a cushy life? Why me? So what is the, the cure to toxic comparison? After you've been restored, don't look around at others. Follow Jesus. The cure to comparison is satisfaction in Jesus. Remember the brokenness from which you've been redeemed. Like when we forget the state in which Jesus found us, when we sat across that fire and he asked, do you love me? When we forget where we were there, our hearts can grow cold to the immeasurable grace of Jesus. What's it to you what Jesus is doing in another one's life? Follow him. So, in the midst of restoring him from his past failures, we look now to Peter's future. And for Peter, Jesus tells him to be concerned about my sheep. Now, Jesus doesn't have actual sheep, he's not a shepherd in that way. The sheep is the church. Isn't it amazing that the way in which Jesus chooses to have Peter demonstrate his love for him is not through casting out demons? Do you love me? Preach a really good sermon. Do you love me? Cut off someone else's ear. Do you love me? Care for my sheep. Care for my church. If you love me, feed my lambs. Jesus calls Peter to be a metaphorical shepherd, which hopefully he's a better metaphorical shepherd than he is actual fisherman. Jesus has already given him this ultimate example of what a shepherd looks like earlier in John's gospel. In John chapter 10, when Jesus is talking to all the disciples and he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Feeding the sheep, taking care of the sheep, the call here for Peter is sacrificial leadership. Jesus laid his life down for the sheep. Peter would need to lay down his desire for power and control and comfort so that he could love the sheep. And later in his life, after he's been doing this for many years, he's writing, Peter's writing uh, to some other elders of another church and he's teaching them what to do and how to have a heart for the church. And he says in his first letter, To the elders among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. See, Jesus is not done with Peter relationally, and he's not done with Peter vocationally. Do you love me? Then love the church like I love the church. Do you love me? Then, Peter, be the rock upon whom I said I want to build this church. It's amazing to me that not only would Jesus want to restore this man who betrayed him, not only would he want to to use him, but he would want the love of God to be manifested in the world through someone like him. God wants his love to be manifested in this world through someone like you. Henry Nowen. Says this. He says, The mystery of ministry is that we have been chosen to make our own limited and very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. So, how does this connect with you? Jesus is not done with you. He's not done with you relationally and he's not done with you vocationally. No, he is not likely calling you into full time ministry to feed the sheep, but has he called you to something specific? Have you asked him if you're Position in life is something that he's called you to specifically. In your workplace, do you have the opportunity to demonstrate your love for Christ in the work that you do or the people you work with or the people that come as a customer to you? I think so. I think that whatever it is that you're called to, whether vocationally or in volunteerism, you have an opportunity to demonstrate your love for Christ in the work. That you do, and even in your familial roles at home, you have the opportunity to demonstrate your love for Christ and the work you do there. You can demonstrate um, restorative grace in your home rather than toxic shame and toxic comparison in the way you relate to your husband or wife or your children. Jesus says, I've dealt with your past. Quit comparing yourself to other people. And if you want to demonstrate your love for me, then follow me. Now, Peter had another specific way in which he was to follow Jesus. Look again with me at the slightly bizarre paragraph, starting in verse 18. Says Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, if you're like me, it might feel a little odd to put here in this conversation, this thing about being young and old and dressing yourself or someone else dressing you. And then it gets to this statement about like interpreting it as, and that's how Peter's going to die. What? What are you talking about, John? What we have here is like a slight play on words. Peter had this freedom and independence, but if he follows Jesus, he follows him to a cross. Because this word for dress yourself or another will dress you could also be termed bind or someone else will bind you. So when you were young, you had freedom and you could dress yourself. When you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will bind you. And we know from church history, it was to bind Peter to a cross himself. Peter was to be a leader who was led Peter's protest to Jesus earlier that week i'll I'll lay down my life for you I'll die for you though it was deferred, it would be fulfilled because Peter would die on a cross later. Henry now and again, he juxtaposes this paragraph here with our culture, and this was from thirty years ago, so it feels like it's even more heightened now. It says. The world says when you were young, you were dependent. You could not go where you wanted. And when you grow old, you will be able to make your own decisions. Go your own way. Control your own destiny. But Jesus has a different vision for maturity. It is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. So let me, let me say that part again. Christian maturity is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. Immediately after this, Jesus commissions Peter to be the leader of his sheep. Jesus confronts him with the hard truth that the servant leader is the leader who is being led into the unknown, the undesirable, and the painful places. So what are you being led into? I can almost guarantee you're not being led to a literal cross, but how might you be led where you would rather not go? How might your hands be stretched out to glorify God, Might your wallet be stretched out to help those in need? Might the doors of your home be stretched open to welcome in the last, least, and the lost? May your heart be stretched out in love and compassion for what I called a few weeks ago the quartet of the vulnerable, which is the widows, the orphans, the migrants, and the poor. How might you demonstrate your love for Jesus in following him? It's not in self-protective, consumeristic strategies and lifestyles. As a staff earlier this week, we, uh, we meditated on Matthew 25. This is where Jesus tells a parable about people who were caring for the poor and imprisoned. And they were rewarded for doing so, saying, what you did for the least of these, you did for me. The risen Jesus wants you to follow him because he's not done with you yet. He's not done with you relationally. He's not done with you vocationally. But hear this if you truly want to be transformed by Jesus, all transformation begins with surrender. It begins with a willingness to lay down our need for control, the willingness to say, even if I don't understand it, even if I can't logically wrap my mind around it, even if it seems foolish, I'm willing to lay down my power and my plans. Do you want this? Do you want restoration? Do you want to be called? Do you love him? If we are all sheep in need of this shepherd, if even the great leader of the early church needed to have his shame met by the grace of Jesus, could we all commit to live lives of honesty and acceptance of our doubts, our disappointments, and our failures with one another? Can we be less shocked and disgusted at another person's sin than the one who gave his life for that sinner? I invite you to experience repentance, redemption, and restoration through Jesus. Because if you're holding this hidden or open shame tightly to you, I invite you to stretch out and let that shame be nailed to the cross, because holding it close to you is not going to bring any healing whatsoever. Look around. I mean, you could literally look around this room, there's not a single person in this room who has found acceptance by God by their good works or their buttoned-up lives. We all sit around a charcoal fire facing our sin, facing our failures, with Jesus not rubbing our noses in it, but rather just asking, do you love me? Do you love me, Lindsay? Jesus asks, do you love me, Sarah? Jesus asks, do you love me, Sean? Jesus asks, Do you love me, Trent? He's not done with you yet. He's not done with you relationally. He's not done with you vocationally. He invites you to follow him because he loves you. And that's why we come to this table for every single week. Before us here, we have bread and juice, which Jesus himself instituted as a sacrament to remember him to remember his life where he displayed the kingdom of God had come here and now, and remember his death, his sacrificial death, which is the only thing that can bring you back into a relationship with God. And so if you're a Christian here, whether you're a member of this church or not, we invite you to partake in communion. So our servers will come now along with our band as I give some logistical instructions. So if if you're coming forward uh, when we start singing, we have gluten-free vegan bread here. And someone will rip off a piece of that and they will offer it to you and say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. You'll take that bread, you'll dip it in the cup and they'll say, this is the blood of Jesus shed for you. It's nothing that you did to bring you back into relationship with God. It's only what he has done. And if you're uncomfortable coming forward here, we still have... A disposable communion cups in the back of the room that you're welcome to take as well. If you're not a Christian, if you've not professed that all of your hope is in Jesus Christ being the Lord of your life, if you're not ready to follow him, not, not ready for him to meet you in your shame, then don't come forward and take this. This will do nothing for you. You have no shame to sit in your seat and ask God to reveal himself to you. Offer to him the brokenness that you know that you have and ask him to meet you in that. He he might do it. And if you would like someone to pray with you, I'm here, Adam's here, Jared's in the back. We would love to pray with you, pray for you, and and see if if God might reveal himself to you this morning. So if you're ready, if you're willing, come forward. Think about sitting around that charcoal fire with that sin in front of you and Jesus not rubbing your face in it, but rather just saying, do you love me? Because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, gosh, we don't have enough words to say thanks for the love that you've displayed for us. We don't have enough words of praise for everything that you've done for us. Father, all that we can offer to you is our need. All that we can offer to you is our shame. And we ask that you meet us and that you take away our shame that you redress us in clothes of white, pure white, taking away our sin. Father, for the men and women in this room, would you meet us? Spirit of God, would you confront us with our sin, convict us of our sin, and comfort us with the reality that you have already dealt with it. You've dealt with the shame. You've dealt with even the fact that even after restoration, we quickly turn away and look to someone else. And that all that you ask is day after day, do you love me? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.